What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This episode, we take a look at some of the compliance and ethics stories from an abbreviated holiday week. They include the Boeing CEO, Dennis Mullenberg, is finally fired. We look at the mid-steps which led to the firing. We look at how his replacement is trying to change the tone at the top. And then Matt and I consider ethics and the CEO this week's Compliance in the Weeds. W.A.G. Matthew Miner on why companies should invest in compliance. Another DPA for the serious fraud office, but they lose yet another trial of corporate individuals for that company. What is a textbook internal investigation? Matt Kelly explored on radical compliance. Sean Friedland took a very deep dive into the morning show, which we check out. What is the role of ESG in corporate investing? We consider the compensation angle to managing multi-generations in the workplace. We consider what is operational resilience and why does it matter. And I have a piece on how Santa informs your compliance program, which will allow you to be good for the remainder of the upcoming year so that hopefully Santa will visit you. This week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for This Week in FCPA, episode 185 for the week ending, December 27th, 2019, the Boeing CEO finally fired edition. Jay, as Boeing uh, takes a much-needed step and fires its confrontational former CEO, Dennis Muhlenberg, um, at least I have recovered enough from my food coma of uh, Thursday, let's see, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, to look at some of uh, the week's top compliance and ethics stories. How about you? Uh, I, my food coma was not as bad, but uh, I'm still amazed, just we were saying before we went on uh, to record that the world of ethics and compliance does not start, stop rather, and uh, we've got a big one for number one, so why don't you tell us what you're thinking about Bowen? So um, the big news this week, really, in the compliance and ethics world, although obviously not around FCPA or an enforcement action, but it really doesn't get much bigger than the Boeing CEO uh, was finally fired. This came about after, uh, actually, is after uh, 
Matt Kelly and I uh, both blogged about this uh, last Monday. I believe that was the 23rd. So I would, as much as I, I would like to take credit and certainly have Matt and I taking credit for this, both of our blog posts uh, were, uh, the Genesis was an article in the uh, Sunday New York Times, uh, which was entitled, At Boeing, a CEO Stumbles Deep in a Crisis. And it laid out the missteps, misadventures, stumbles, and uh, frankly, intentional acts by Boeing's now former CEO, Dennis Muhlenberg, all around the, the values of the company, ethics, and compliance. Uh, the next day, uh, he was fired by the CEO, excuse me, by the board of directors. Um, the missteps, uh, I think we've talked about them uh, kind of over the last uh, 18 months, many of them on this podcast. Uh, but his last kind of series, uh, just as idiotic as it comes, was in a telephone call with President Trump, he told President Trump that Boeing had completed its uh, software fix and it was ready to go, and it was the regulators who were hanging it up by not uh, testing it and approving their CEO uh, by their software fix. Well, of course, it turned out that wasn't true. And the next week, in a ver- in a private meeting, uh, the FAA reprimanded uh, Boeing's chief for uh, putting out this false information and was told point blank by the head of the FAA not to ask for any favors during even the discussion. And he said Boeing should put its focus on providing documents when needed to fully describe the plane software changes, which clearly indicates they had not provided the FAA with all the um, information. And and then the article listed uh, many of uh, the other missteps, really starting with um, the fact that uh, the CEO himself was aware of the software failures uh, after the first crash and before the second crash, um, he was communicated about the problems in production by an internal whistleblower uh, up to his level uh, after the uh, second crash. And uh, aviation authorities across the globe grounded the uh, 737 MAX. He personally called President Trump and asked him not to ground the fleet or instruct the FAA not to do so. The FAA did not until the pressure became so great Um but the really the the single most incredible thing, Jay, was the uh, company after the first crash had initiated an internal investigation and had uh, uh, up uh, come up with and discovered many of the production problems, the safety concerns raised by uh, people who were producing and testing um, the seven three seven Max, and the um, Boeing sat on it, and they sat on it. Uh, they gave it uh, gave it, or was taken by the Department of Justice, it's not clear, uh, but they never told the FAA about it. And uh, last October, the FAA found out about it in an article, uh, and the FAA, uh, starting with a head, at, was rightly just livid because they had been uh, hiding these documents from the FAA. Uh, Boeing's position was that they couldn't share that information with the FAA because of the ongoing criminal investigation. And in the words of uh, Colonel uh, Sherman Potter, that's just horse hockey. Um, every compliance practitioner knows that uh, the three prongs of any cooperation effort or effort with uh, the regulators include self-disclosure, remediation, and um, full cooperation with the investigation. So um, I think that was probably really the, the biggest last, last straw up until this uh, inane comment with President Trump. Nevertheless, uh, the next day, the board took the position that uh, it was time for a new CEO and brought in 
a new CEO. We cited to a Wall Street Journal article um, where Dave Calhoun is the new CEO. And the first thing he did was call the head of the FAA uh, the day uh, on Monday to say, uh, 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 you know, there's a new sheriff in town and we're going to cooperate now. So uh, that's certainly an, an appropriate start. It's not clear, obviously, whether or not that will continue and only time will tell. But um, um, it really points up to if you want credit during cooperate uh, during an investigation, you've got to cooperate. And you can't hide documents and you can't play games uh, like Muhlenberg did. Um, and that is, is equally important a message for the compliance practitioner, for the F- FCPA compliance practitioner or any other compliance practitioner. Uh, all you can say about Muhlenberg was his ethical values and accountability were so far below zero around this. It's uh, it's really hard to kind of match up what you and I both know. We we both know people that work at Boeing in compliance, and uh, they are I think pretty well thought of in the compliance community for their commitment to compliance. But these actions by uh, Muhlenberg and the tone he set are just completely antithetical. Uh, to having uh, accountability within your organization. So finally, Boeing makes the change. It really was uh, probably long overdue, and uh, Boeing's now got to figure out a way to move forward because one of the things that I don't think we've really considered on this podcast, Jay, is what do you do when it's not simply Boeing is too big to fail? They're way beyond that. This is not one of 10 banks worldwide or nationwide. This is the United States' primary air uh, plane manufacturer. And so for security reasons, we've got to have Boeing for on the civil side, I should say. <coughs> and uh, all of the uh, companies, suppliers, vendors in the supply chain that uh, uh, de- depend on Boeing for business, all of the airlines, um, Southwest Airlines fleet is primarily 737 MAX jets. They've had to take them out of service. Um it's led to a, a travel crisis around not certainly Southwest, but other airlines not having enough airlines. They need to fix this problem, and they need to have fixed it a long time ago because too much in the U.S. transportation economy security all depends on uh, Boeing. And you know the only other major airline manufacturer, airplane manufacturer, is uh, Airbus, and of course they're European, and that would be antithetical to. America only, uh, the America only approach of Donald Trump. So uh, there's a lot riding on this, and there's a lot riding on getting getting it right because it's unclear whether passengers are ever going to feel safe on a 737 Max again. Certainly, uh, one the internal whistleblower who headed the or was a, a, a part of the head of the manufacturing process put in an email that even he was would be reluctant to have his family fly on this jet. So um, when you have the manufacturer saying that, it's a pretty damning statement. So uh, although not in, you know, FCPA compliance, about as powerful a lesson around ethics, accountability, and corporate values as uh, we have seen in some time. So just to kind of put a wrapper on this, um, you know, Boeing is at a real inflection point, and unfortunately it's taken them about nine to ten months to get here. But uh, what we'll have to see going forward, is Boeing going to be a serial recidivist like Wells Fargo, or are they going to take the opportunity to get their house in order like Toyota? Because uh, it amazes me when I'm driving around here in Southern California, 
I don't know what it's like in uh, Houston, but there are just so many Priuses out there. And if you would have gone back to after that Toyota wrongful acceleration uh, imbruglio, uh, I would have never uh, forecasted that Toyota would make such a strong rebound and be a company that's known for quality and fuel efficiency. So there is uh, the right way that Boeing can go, and hopefully Mr. Calhoun would take them that way. Well, I'm going to take that as a personal victory that you used the term imbroglio, Jay. I was, uh, it was a, definitely a personal victory just for me to get that out of my mouth. <laughs> so uh, next up, uh, a good friend of yours you saw last time in New York City, Dylan Toker, over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, has uh, a snappy little interview with uh, Matthew Miner uh, from the U.S. Department of Justice. And uh, basically, the DOJ in recent years has expanded beyond its primary mission to investigate and prosecute into a role that's more about explaining what measures companies can take to avoid criminal investigations in the first place. Yet some chief compliance officers are still skeptical that the DOJ has the expertise or resources to meaningfully assess the work they do. Matt Miner, Deputy Assistant Attorney General overseeing the department's criminal division, wants to convince others wise, and he spoke to the Risk and Compliance Journal about how the Justice Department is incentivizing companies to invest in compliance. On how the Justice Department can overcome the skepticism in the corporate community, it's a legitimate concern, Miner says, from the white-collar bar, and particularly the corporate community, that a compliance program will be evaluated with perfect 2020 hindsight with an eye on misconduct, and then thinking the compliance program didn't work, Mr. Miner said. Well, we've tried to convey as strongly as possible that we want companies to invest in remedial compliance measures and to talk about those when they come in and present and how far they've come based upon the lessons learned. It's critical that prosecutors assess a company's compliance at the time of violation and also the time it reaches settlement, something that we've been speaking about in this podcast for a while. If the program has flagged the misconduct and allowed the cooperation, excuse me, allowed the corporation to investigate and remediate under a self-disclosure program by self-disclosing, this would weigh very heavily in the favor of mitigating the severity of the resolution. On remediation and how it can help a company, uh, they take a look at the work a company does after discovering misconduct known as remediation. Miner said, if a company does root cost analysis and figures out where the compliance gaps are and trains employees about how to prevent future issues, then they will be given credit. In terms of how prosecutors are taught the approach uh, to approach compliance holistically, uh, Miner says that they've tried to bring home to our prosecutors the range of components of the compliance program and that the compliance program is more than just a compliance department. So when they sit down and they engage in evolution, evaluation rather, of adequacy and the effectiveness of compliance programs, they're doing so with a level of greater sophistication. Uh, we all know our colleague Wei Chen was brought in there in 2015, and after she left in 2017, there was not a quote-unquote compliance expert at the DOJ. Uh, now, Miner and his colleagues expect that everyone who is a line prosecutor will know about ethics and compliance, and one thing that he suggested in this article that it might be kind of interesting to take a compliance officer from private practice and have them come and participate in uh, what, what they're doing at the DOJ. So um, real short to the point answers and uh, 
I think we're both encouraged uh, that it's no longer just lip service, that the DOJ really does believe in having uh, a strong ethics and compliance program. And just to our last story talking about Boeing, uh, not only do you have to have that program, but you have to be forthcoming and you have to share along the way if you hope to reap the results of no of a declination and no disgorgement. Indeed. So, Jay, uh, from the um, FCPA blog in an article by Susan Hawley, we take a look at a new deferred prosecution agreement entered into by the Serious Fraud Office and trials of an individuals from the company entered into the uh, DPA. So uh, the company was Geralp Systems, which I believe is a software manufacturer, uh, or rather designs and sells uh, seismological instruments uh, used for detecting nuclear weapons, structural monitoring of dams, etc. They paid bribes to a South Korean public official um, to uh, make sales. Pretty open and shut. Uh, they self-reported to the U.S. Department of Justice. The um, individual uh, got paid the bribes. They had U.S. jurisdiction over him. He was convicted on one count of money laundering uh, the proceeds in a jury trial. Um, the Serious Fraud Office went to trial against uh, individuals from the company, from Gural and um, its uh, founder and former director, and they were acquitted by a UK jury. So uh, once again, a, a pretty big black eye for the serious fraud office when they have a uh, deferred prosecution agreement with a company admitting it paid bribes. You had the U.S. prosecuting the individual who paid the bribes. Uh, it's not clear if the U.S. could have gotten jurisdiction over the UK individuals who paid the bribe or simply they ceded um, primary prosecution of this uh, to the serious fraud office. It may well be the latter. Um, and the um, once again, it's it's not clear uh, how or why the individuals uh, were acquitted. Nevertheless, a uh, fairly big black eye for the SFO. There's a couple of features in the DPA, and I should note that the uh, the Department of Justice uh, gave a declination to Girl Up, Girl Ralp. Uh, saying it was closing its inquiry, notwithstanding evidence of violations of the FCPA. So pretty clearly there were FCPA violations here and why the SFO could not get a conviction is still not clear. Nevertheless, the DPA was the first one in the United Kingdom where there's no financial penalty paid, only profit disgorgement. Uh, There was no timetable within the DPA for that payment. That's very, uh, uh, very different, I would say, from U.S. DPAs. it's not clear uh, what will happen if the company does not make a repayment of uh, the disgorgement, uh, if the DPA will be uh, revoked in some way. Um, so uh, lots of interesting things from this article. And uh, kind of, once again, the uh, SFO has fallen under criticism for its failure to be able to follow through and actually uh, convict individuals where uh, the company has pled guilty and there are other uh, guilty verdicts in the case. Uh, so next up, something from our colleague, the coolest guy in compliance, uh, Matt Kelly. This comes to us from his Radical Compliance blog, and it's called A Textbook Investigation from the Navy. Uh, as some of us sports fans know, uh, 10 days ago, uh, the U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen streaked into the social media 
notoriety and controversy when they were seen flashing a white power hand gesture on national television during the Army-Navy football game. Outcried ensued and the Navy launched a prompt investigation. Last week, the Navy published the results. And first, the most important point that the midshipmen did not act with any racist intent. They did flash the OK hand gesture, which is a symbol that white supremacists have used to communicate their cause. And it's basically a game that when you flash that OK signal, if somebody looks at you, looks at the signal, you get to punch them in the arm. Uh, Very sophomoric. But um, here is what Matt thinks about what went well in terms of how the investigation was conducted. First, the investigation was prompt. The preliminary investigation was completed and published five days later. Second, the investigation was independent. It was done by a member of the JAG, not by somebody at the Naval Academy. Third, the investigation was comprehensive. The JAG officer interviewed 32 people, including two midshipmen who flashed the gesture. The officer also had the FBI and NCIS do background checks. Fourth, the investigation proved its conclusions. And fifth, the investigation included a root cause analysis. Suffice to say, the the coordination was scant. When ESPN producers needed to get a few more midshipmen to get good video for the shoot, the process was pretty much, uh, hey, you guys over there, you want to be in the shot? So we have an investigation that was prompt, independent, comprehensive, conclusive, and included a root cause analysis. What are the lessons in leadership that we can pull from this? Well, if it's white supremacists have, have appropriated the OK gesture as a symbol for their movement, then it's no longer a hoax. This gesture can connote what white supremacist views are. And in fact, white supremacists such as Brandon Tarrant use it that way. Apparently, the two midshipmen didn't know what they were doing. But the fact remains that they flashed a gesture associated with white supremacy. And here's a lesson in leadership that Matt pulls from this. Leaders are not just accountable for what they say. They're also accountable for what others hear. They need to anticipate how their words and deeds might be interpreted by others. And to do that, they need to understand the diversity of experience and sentiment in the audience. Matt's point is that this incident shows the peril of leadership in the modern world and people in high power sitting in the CEO chair, serving the public office, getting on national TV can convey messages to a vast audience. If those leaders don't consider how their actions might be received, chaos can follow. Next, we had a really interesting, fun, uh, and I thought very insightful article by Sean Friedland. And Sean is over at SAI Global, and uh, he's the director of product marketing at SAI Global. But this article is not directly related to SAI Global, nor Sean's role. He posted it on LinkedIn last week, uh, but I thought it was so, frankly, important that I wanted to talk about it this week. Um, uh, It's entitled Rise and Shine, The Morning Show's Wake-Up Call to Corporate America. And he takes a deep dive into the Apple TV hit show, The Morning Show. And, um, and I told Sean, this, this, I think, is the best thing I've ever seen him write. He goes through, and um, the story arc is basically um, a longtime co-host of a morning show. The male uh, has engaged in sexual harassment over the years. He gets called to task for it. Uh, he has to leave the show. They bring on a, 
a new uh, partner for uh, his former female partner. The new partner is uh, young and vivacious. And uh, so there's lots going on here in terms of um, workplace dynamics, uh, competition, um, sexual harassment, the uh, response of a company to women who uh, report sexual harassment. Me Too, of course, is throughout the uh, the episodes. And um, it really, I think, uh, as Sean says, the morning show is ultimately an exploration of how the decisions people make at work impact everyone else, big and small, top to bottom, and how a culture of complicity is created and grown until something terrible enough happens to put it to a stop. And I don't think we really, Jay, have talked a lot about a culture of complicity. We have touched on it, perhaps, in some uh, uh, pieces uh, over the last uh, few years. But I thought it was uh, really uh, important to think about that, uh, not simply uh, a culture of values and ethics in, in not harassing uh, your coworkers, but what is your or what is my responsibility around complicity? And um, really, um, if I could go back to the summer series I did on trekking through compliance on the intersection of uh, the original series of Star Trek and compliance, uh, one of the first few episodes, uh, well, first of all, I was, I was uh, very surprised to, to, when I went through the series, there were three rape scenes in that television series of seven to nine episodes. And the first one was uh, perhaps the most horrific um, where Captain Kirk is split into two personalities and the bad Kirk uh, attempts to rape Yeoman Rand. He doesn't succeed. But the scene where she uh, doesn't confront him but actually has to tell Spock and McCoy uh, is, you could have literally ripped it right out of me too. And this was 50 years ago. Um, so the culture of complicity is is incredibly important for every compliance practitioner to address. And you have to not have only a safe place where people can bring this information forward, but you have to continue to make that place um, safe so that there's no retaliation, so there's no blowback, so that the uh, conduct, uh, the antithetical values of the conduct uh, is not only cut out of the organization, but it stays out of the organization. Uh, another prime example right now is the uh, Navy SEALs who testified uh, against uh, their uh, leader, team leader, uh, who was found guilty, and uh, Trump pardoned him. And um, so what's going to happen to them? Um, because their testimony now has been leaked. So uh, a culture of complicity is something that every compliance officer needs to think about. I would suggest you you really go out and test for it. Uh, but uh, kudos to Sean for kind of putting this this theme and this storyline together uh, in now one of the the top uh, TV hits of, of the Q4 2019. Good stuff, uh, Sean. Great article, and uh, everyone we're linking to it in the show notes. Uh, next up, we've got something from the Harvard Law School Forum on corporate governance and financial regulation. It's called uh, "Corporate Person in." Purpose and Play, The Role of ESG Giving. Uh, this comes to us from John Ruggi. Uh, on October, rather, on August 19, 2019, the U.S. Business Roundtable, comprising CEOs of more than 200 of America's largest corporations, 
issued a new mission statement on the purpose of the corporation. The press release noted that each periodic update on principles of corporate governance since 1997 had endorsed the principle of maximizing shareholder value. In contrast with this new statement, the signatory CEOs have said that the purpose of a corporation now is to lead their companies for the benefit of all stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, community, and shareholders. And as many uh, pundits have remarked that Milton Friedman must be turning over in his grave. This was uh, a quote from Fortune magazine. So such shifts are unprecedented. William Allen, a highly regarded former chancellor of the Delaware Court of Chancery, authored an essay some years ago entitled Our Schizophrenic Conception of the Business Corporation. Allen's thesis was over the course of the 20th century that there have been two different and inconsistent ways to conceptualize the public corporation. One way is to look at it as property, and another way is to look at it as social conception. Uh, The social conception idea came about during the New Deal when it was much more than just running a business, but the whole country depended upon uh, you know the 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 corporation to set its social agenda. This took a change uh, to the other direction when um, Milton Freeman started talking about his thing in the seventies. The question is now: is should we consider a business um, round, should we consider business roundtable's mission statement as schizophrenia redux? As an attempt to preempt left-of-center politicians, a significant normative departure in the direction of the stakeholder theory of the firm. This is unnecessary because most of the companies already take shareholder concerns into consideration. And even under Delaware law, they have the discretionary power to do so. Of course, at this point, no one can know or even guess if the idea of repurposing the corporation will shape actual day-to-day business decisions. But it seems safe to conjecture that whatever the immediate motivations for the business roundtable statement may have been, the move towards a more social equity conception of the public corporation that implies it will be a remarkable rise in ESG investing. This will take into account a company's environmental, social, and government's policies in making investment decisions in the future. So this is just a, a little preview of the paper, but we link to the uh, full full, uh, full story in our show notes. Tom, next up, uh, tell us about the compliance angle to managing multi-generations. Right. So actually, uh, Jay, it was um, not compliance, but compensation. And in a really interesting article, a fellow who I was not familiar with, Elliot Dinkin, uh, over at um, Cowden Associates, uh, wrote an article about thinking through management of your workforce with compensation. And he took the kind of standard compensation that probably you and I have seen at uh, corporations we worked at, a base compensation, targeted at some percentile of the average of uh, people in our discipline, PPO benefits, uh, co-pays, co-insurance, standard levels of life insurance, dental, vision, et cetera, a 401 match, uh, perhaps up to 6% of deferred compensation, things that we say uh, uh, we we would find uh, pretty standard. 
But he says in the in the with the millennial workforce and now with the um, uh, the iGen workforce, they have really different values and different desires around compensation. So that he uh, suggests different options. Uh, based upon what the employee preference is. So it could be more PTO. It could be uh, less base compensation. It could be a package of uh, reduced level of retirement benefits for those in their 20s. Um, It could be uh, a reduced level of uh, life insurance or disability, uh, perhaps even uh, opting out of medical or health care if it's still available uh, under Obamacare. It could be a bare minimum of core benefits, yet uh, increased pay. And um, it certainly, I thought, was a different way to think about compensation. The compliance angle, Jay, really comes in around things like pay equity. Uh, Are these options available to uh, protected categories, age, race, gender, uh, national origin, religion, et cetera? Uh, 401 testing, uh, record keeping and administration, and it really speaks to I think of a, a much more sophisticated approach to pay and compensation. Certainly different than uh, my observations uh, when I was uh, in the corporate world. So, uh, kudos to um, Elliot Dinkin, and um, there is a compliance uh, perspective to this, but um, it it really I think uh, is something that every corporate discipline is going to have to be open to new ideas, including compliance, including HR, including compensation professionals within HR. Interesting stuff, Tom. Uh, Next up, as promised, we have the second story from Matt Kelly that we're going to quote to. And Matt wants to find out what is operational resilience and why does it matter? This comes to us from Navex Global's Ethics and Compliance Matter blog. Uh, Matt says, operational resilience is the ability of a business to tolerate shocks and maintain its normal operations. These shocks could be anything ranging from IT failures, natural disaster, terrorism, cyber attacks. But the typical sudden shocks happening within hours or even minutes that threaten your company's ability to provide whatever it is you provide. Threats to operational resilience are on the rise. For example, banking regulators want more authority to examine the tech vendors that work with large banks. These regulators want to be sure that those vendors are reliable and won't crash in some crucial situation that could paralyze our financial system. Or if you want a small-scale example, Matt takes a look at a virtual care provider, Inc., an IT services firm based in Wisconsin that provides data storage, email billing, and other services to more than 110 nursing homes. VCP fell victim to ransomware attack in November, where hackers shut down virtually all of the firm's operations. Whether we're talking about the banking industry or individual firms, the challenge is the same. Companies need to govern their operations so that no matter what disruptors might come along, they can keep providing their services. So because the risk is to operational, because these risks to operational resilience are proliferating, largely thanks to how companies use modern tech, we have more vendors providing not just good, but also services and business processes. That means more possible points of failure with more severe potential consequences all the time. Banking regulators are leading the way on this issue right now. 
Well, who believes that regulators will stop at that sector? Consider our nursing home example from above or telecommunication firms or other public utilities. Clearly, this is a challenge of risk assessment, and the question is exactly what type of risk a company is supposed to be assessing. Is it vendor risk? Is it cybersecurity? Is it business continuity? So companies are going to need a more thoughtful approach to how they assess their vendors. For example, some operating unit or company will decide to rely on a tech vendor to run a business process. The operating unit might find a fantastic vendor, the vendor, but the vendor cannot always perform flawlessly. Your company still needs to assess the cybersecurity risk. While the CISO can perform the first risk assessment, internal audit can do the second, and the third can be done... Uh, by compliance. The challenge in your company is getting all these assessments done and coordinated so people talk together. Developing these risk assessment and management capabilities so that we can assure operational resilience and even document it for some highly regulated sectors like banking is going to take time. Above how, however, companies will need a clear-eyed consensus about what operational resilience means to them. This concept is easy to grasp, but defining how it works at your specific company is not. Maintaining operational resilience will require lots of cooperation among CISOs, compliance, internal audit, and risk management. Still, as we close out to 2010s, Matt would like to see a version of, 2020, of the 2020s where risk management skills like this will become less employment, but unfortunately, he does not see it at this moment. I had a piece this week um, that compliance practitioners need to think about throughout the year because I took a look at compliance lessons from Santa Claus. And although Christmas was uh, two days ago as we record this podcast, remember the spirit of Santa lives throughout the year. So what compliance lessons can the compliance practitioner take away from Santa Claus? Well, obviously, the value of giving uh, is a big one. And the joy of giving is reward enough for most people. Marketing and public relations. There's not too many more uh, great PR teams than the big guy. And uh, his image is everywhere. And uh, he's about as ubiquitous as they come. Uh, next up, he has not changed his basic look in many, 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 many years. No fads uh, for the big guy. So keep your basic look. Certainly, his attitude is contagious. Uh, he's always positive. And uh, even when you're on the naughty list, you can get on the nice list the next year. He certainly respects deadlines because he's got the, about the biggest deadline there is. He understands the value of tradition. Um, and um, he has customer service as a top priority. And I mean top priority. But it's not just Santa because teamwork is central to his operation. I uh, rewatched the Polar Express this week, and uh, you got to love the elves. So he epitomizes leadership, um, but uh, he works uh, uh, quite well with Mrs. Claus as well. And finally, love what you do, and you never work a day in your life. So some great compliance lessons uh, from Santa, Jay. So I know the the big guy was pretty good to you with his gifts, but what kind of podcast gifts did Old St. Nick leave for our listeners over the week? Well, we had, uh, I thought, a couple of um, interesting two-part series that I wanted to highlight, Jay. Uh, you were, of course, part of one with, uh, we had a two-part of Everything Compliance, where we do our annual year-end wrap-up of compliance under the Trump administration. So we posted uh, part one 
featured yourself, myself, and uh, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Part two featured Sarah Haddon, Mike Volkoff, and Jonathan Armstrong. And over the past uh, couple of weeks, we had, or I had rather, uh, fan fave James Kukios, partner in Morrison and Forrester, to talk about two of the firm's most recent anti-corruption, international anti-corruption newsletters. Uh, in part one, which was posted last week, uh, we took a look at the September newsletter. And in part two, uh, which was posted this past Monday, we took a look at the October newsletter. Uh, James is a former uh, FCPA unit um, uh, prosecutor, so he has been uh, a line prosecutor. Uh, he's uh, worked in this area for quite some time, and it's always uh, really insightful, Jay, for me to talk to him, not only from the prosecutorial perspective, but as a uh, white-collar defense practitioner, he tends to look at things through that lens. So it's a great way for the compliance practitioner to hear about how the DOJ might be thinking through an issue and how a white-collar defense practitioner would also uh, think through an issue. So uh, we posted these, and um, I think it's uh, they're both great, and I hope everyone will enjoy these podcasts, Jay. Hey, Tom. Uh, so wondering, is it too early to preview any of your on-site visits for 2020? Anything on your calendar yet? So, uh, yeah, I've got uh, a couple of different things. Uh, let me see if I can pull those up. The first one is uh, in New York, I believe, on uh, Tuesday the 13th. No, it's Tuesday the 14th, excuse me. I'm uh, attending a breakfast hosted by uh, Refinitiv, and we're going to look at uh, compliance and um, financial services. And then uh, towards the end of the month, I believe on the 28th, um, Jonathan Marks over at Baker & Tilly is hosting an event in Philadelphia, um, basically women in compliance, and I'm going to be on a panel, I believe, with Mary Shirley um, around uh, mentorship and what you can do to help mentor uh, women in compliance, and certainly Mary and Lisa Fine have done a great job with their Women in Compliance podcast series, but... Uh, you know, what I was able to do to help facilitate that for them and let them run with it. So uh, that's going to be it probably uh, for January, unless uh, something else fills out my schedule. So I'm going to take us on home for the uh, last podcast of 2019. When you hear from us next week, it'll be 2020. So for the week uh, ending December 27th, 2019, uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 185, the Boeing CEO Finally Fired Edition. On behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Hope you have a great weekend and continue to enjoy the holidays as we bring the year out. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA, our final episode for 2019. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up the first This Week in FCPA podcast for the year 2020. I'd also like to take this opportunity to wish everyone a most joyous, happy new year, and most importantly, a safe, happy new year and New Year's Eve. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.